So we're going to read uh, all of chapter 19 from the book of Judges. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. As she, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with, with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned towards evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of those, these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that, at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. He lift, sorry, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants." There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. 
But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Okay, so nothing we have read to this point in the book of Judges has really prepared us for the brutality of that passage. And it understandably has elicited strong reactions from the moment it was penned, probably from the moment it occurred, right through to the present. And so when you read commentators and what the commentators and scholars say, they often say that the point of this passage and the next three passages, that the main theme running through them is hospitality. Now, I'm not... I didn't, mean to, I didn't think I'd get a laugh out of that. Um, that wasn't meant to be a laugh. But I understand. Now, when you're looking at a piece of, of, of literature at, uh, from a, a detached perspective as a scholar, I understand exactly what they're saying. From a literary perspective, it is clear that the hospitality that the man shows his son-in-law is a stark contrast to the hospitality you see in Gibeah. I agree. However, when a normal human being reads this passage what you don't come away thinking is, boy, hospitality is a strange thing. That's not what happens. You come away thinking, what the heck did I just read? What is happening? Why did this occur? How can God allow it? What is going on in Israel that allows this sort of thing to happen? And it raises this question, not so much of hospitality, though that's a fair thing. It raises the question more of justice. Why is this allowed to happen? And how, where is justice for this woman? and for the people who committed it, and for all of Israel. What's going on? And it raises the question, being that question of justice, that is an age-old question. If you're a philosophy major or anything like that, you know that from the beginning of human speech, we have been wrestling with the question of justice. And when you scan, we don't have time to scan the history of this question in philosophy, but we can say, historically, humanity has found three ways that they have generally approached the question of justice, meaning, why should we be just? Why should I be good? Why should I care what happens to this woman or anyone else for that matter? And we've come up with three different answers, and the first one is probably, unfortunately, the best we can manage as humans, and it's the best we can do when we've rooted, we've based all of our lives on it, all of our economic systems, our democratic system, everything is rooted, excuse me, rooted on it, and it shows how incapable we are of actually becoming a just people. So the three ways, very quickly, are this. The first one is self-interest. So historically, we have said, it's very simple. You should be good because it benefits you when you're good. If you are just to the world, the world will generally, anyway, be just to you. And so we get that. Isn't that exactly what capitalism is? Right? Capitalism says, if, uh, if a woman... Well, I'm pointing at me, I'm not a woman. But if, if a woman is a small business owner and 
she wants to, um, to, to make a profit. So she comes up with an idea or let's say a product. And because her self-interest is I want to be part of the community, I want to flood it with something and I want to make a profit for myself, that self-interest will drive her to make a good product that people will want at a fair price. And so as long as she is seeking her self-interest, you will benefit. And then the competitor will come and make the same product at a cheaper price and that competition should make a better product and price for you and I. And this is the foundation of justice, generally, and I'm going to go into much more detail. But that's generally it. But the problem, of course, is any justice system that is founded on self-interest is necessarily flawed. Because ultimately, it's not about the other person or justice at all. It's about you benefiting. So it's a flawed system, but that seems to be the best humanity can muster. The second way we've approached it was the social interest. And this is found when you drive 40, well, somebody, I don't, but when you drive 40 in a school zone. Now, that sounds terrible, like I'm like running over children. That's not what's happening. But <laughs> when we drive 40 in a school zone, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to curtail my desire to go faster for the sake of the community so I don't harm people. And you're willing to do that. And that, that sounds very good. And generally, we want to be the sort of people who are good because it benefits society. The problem is, you're selfish. And you are willing to go 40 in a school zone. You're willing to sacrifice... Okay, here's this example. Let's use a, a close-to-the-bone example. When, when, um, when COVID hit, you and I were pretty willing to stay home for a month, weren't we? We were willing to sacrifice for a time. But then after a month, we start getting the theories that all this, that's, there's a conspiracy and all, you know, we, we were there. They don't need to tell you. And then after a, after a while, didn't you find that your desire to benefit the world started to change? And it may have been you were thinking, no, I'm, I am seeking the best for the country. That's why I'm not going to submit to these rules. But regardless, the point is this. At some point, because you are a selfish creature as we all are, at some point the demand of the society will be more than you're willing to give. You're happy to pay taxes, but not too many taxes. You're happy to sacrifice for your country, but not die for your country, for Trudeau's silly war, not that we're in one, necessarily. You see, I'm willing to support my country. It's Canada's my country. Have a flag in the church, but not Trudeau. I don't support him. See, there's always a limit, isn't there? Because you and I are selfish, and humanity wants to be better. We really do. But social interest has never worked as the foundation. But it's part of it. It's one of the ways. Selfish interest societal interest, and the last one is divine interest. Humans have historically believed that there is a higher power of some type, and that higher power generally rewards the just and punishes the unjust. And even an atheist is happy to say, hey, if you need a myth to make you behave well, that's fine, but it's just a myth. But either way, this is the assumption. We behave and there's justice because we're terrified of eternal damnation and punishment for not behaving, or we're seeking eternal reward for acting justly. But first, let me be clear. If you think that of all religions, I get it. But of Christianity, if you believe that, you don't understand Christianity at all. Christianity does not reward the just. It doesn't come and say, Christ doesn't come and say, I'm going to save the good. He says, I'm going to raise the dead. It's a very big difference. You are not rewarded for your good works because, as we've just seen, you have none. So, but there is that. That's, that's the second but even, or third one. But even in that, there's a problem, isn't there? Because how many Christian leaders, men and women, have we seen fall because the temptation of immediate 
joy and gratification trumps their claims about a future hope they have. That it's one thing to say, I will sacrifice good things in this world that are not good for my soul for the eternity of Christ until the secretary is better looking to you, right? Until the eternity. And what happens inevitably in this situation is that the vague eternity is sacrificed on the altar of the concrete present. And so even the divine interest as a basis for justice falls apart. And so here we have a world now rooted primarily in the first one. Let's try to be as good as we can. And we're doing pretty well, but not well enough. Injustice is rampant, and we keep thinking the best way to fix it is to have a better judge, human judge, a better system, better checks and balances in place. And so the legal code of Canada is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So when we then turn this way, well, actually, let me say this. Here's the, here's the problem as well, I notice. When I'm speaking with, with philosophers and, and those types, I understand the desire, but I was on a website called, I think it was philosophynow.org, and they have all kinds of threads where you can discuss topics, and one of the topics was this question of why should we be good, and one person wrote this, if everyone valued others' welfare in as much as they value their own, then everyone would share the greatest total benefit. Yeah. Thanks. We know, we know that. The problem isn't that. See, what I find interesting is, is this. We think and we know the best we can manage in our humanity is to be, have a selfish system, and yet we yearn for something better. We know the best we can do is, if I look out for me, I'm helping you, but we'd say at the same time, but boy, wouldn't it be nice if we simply were willing to lay down our self-interest for the sake of another? So this longing that we have is a longing, I think, ultimately for the God of the Bible. But before we get there, let's now move into Judges 19 and, and on. Judges 19 shows us exactly what happens when self-interest is what rules our justice system. Not just, I'm not talking the legal system, I mean our world. When we have divorced ourselves from the one who is the source of justice and truth, what inevitably happens is Judges 19, and it's re being replayed out. And as terrible as this, as this is, do you understand that what is described here is happening in some form or another right now as we speak somewhere in our world? Like you have to be a naive Canadian to think that the world, that this is, is, is a one-off situation. It's not. This sort of brutality is happening everywhere. And so when we look at this passage and the next chapters, I'm going to go through the whole story, um, we will see that when you divorce yourself from God, human justice becomes exclusive, relative, and abusive. Okay? So I'll try to move as quickly as Carl can on this Palm Sunday. Jesus would have to go very slow into Jerusalem on a donkey to keep up with this very long sermon. No. Um, so let's go through the story. Let me walk through chapter 19 and show you, because one of the things we're, see we're seeing in this passage, and uh, we have to see it, even though I don't always love it, is we are being forced to see that there is a woman in this passage who is being objectified. Now, feminist scholars go too far and try to read modern sensibilities into the ancient, so I reject them. However, you cannot walk away from this passage without noticing that we are meant to see that a woman is being treated terribly, even for ancient standards, and it's meant to be held in our face, so we must see it. So let's walk through the passage and show us how we see how she is objectified, meaning she is treated more as a thing than as a person. Okay? Again, this is what happens. And it may not be women, but someone is always going to be objectified, when God is out at the root of our justice. But let me walk through it. 
First thing we read is this man, a Levite, a different one from the last chapter. This Levite has taken for himself a woman. Now the word he took for himself a woman is the word yakah in Hebrew, which is the word to grasp or seize. And it's used very often of objects. So he takes for himself, right? Subtle, subtle wording, because you can say he took for himself, meaning he just got a wife. But that wording, watch as it continues to build on the rest of what we see. Then we hear, interestingly, that she was unfaithful to him, so she leaves and goes to her, mother, her father's house. If you have a Bible that is a New Living Translation or a New Revised Standard Translation, you'll notice it doesn't say she, ha- she was unfaithful to him. It says that she was angry with him. And the reason is the word that is used there for unfaithful, that is generally translated unfaithful, is actually quite cryptic. And we don't know what it means, though it's most often translated as unfaithfulness. But here's the challenge. Was she unfaithful to him? You'll talk about this in your community groups, but if she was unfaithful to him, we have to wonder why he went back to get her using kind words. Um, is it possible? And when you read the, the, the sway of the story, is this the sort of man who is going to be just, or is he the kind of man who may have just made her angry and she leaves? Regardless, here's what we do know. She leaves. And that act alone is a sign of defiance in the ancient culture. A woman in that culture does not have the autonomy to just up and leave her husband. So when she gets up and leaves, whether she had an affair, and I'm not condoning it, of course, if that was the case, we don't condone it, but the very act of that is sexual autonomy, which is unheard of in the ancient world. They don't have a a mechanism to understand her actions, either sexual or to leave. So when she leaves, she is doing something very countercultural, regardless of what caused it. Then, he waits four months before he goes and gets her. Now, my wife is upset with me and she leaves. I can't imagine I'd wait four months till I called her. I'd, be, I'd run out of food by then. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to shower. I don't know how to use the... I don't know how to do anything. No, but, but you read it and you may gloss over it, but do you realize she's gone for four months before he goes after her. And yes, it says she is his concubine, but it also says, and it doesn't say in your, your language, but if you see the Greek, you see it. She's referred to as a Pelagus, but is a, which is a, um, a concubine, but also as an ish, or an isha. An isha is a wife. Because in the ancient world, yes, concubines were there primarily for sexual gratification, but they weren't, it was not acceptable to treat them poorly. You still cared for them. You still, they still had a certain degree of rights. It wasn't, this is not normal. So he waits four months before he goes to get her. Then he gets there, and why is the father being so hospitable? If she did cheat on her husband, then the father may be trying to butter up the guy because he knows he is liable if his daughter has left a man with, for unjust reasons. Financially, he could be on the hook. So is he trying to butter him up? We really don't know. We don't know for sure. But it's certainly interesting. It is definitely a contrast to the hospitality he will get in a few minutes at Gibeah. Then, interestingly, when he sets out to go get his wife in verse 3 of 19, it says, and he took with him his servant and two donkeys. And then when he's leaving the house after those five days, it gives us another catalog of his possessions, but this time it says he has the donkeys and his concubine. It's interesting that she is listed in the the catalog of his possessions there. But let's keep moving on. He then goes and he leaves and he doesn't want to spend the night at Jebus because it is not a Jewish town. If you remember, uh, Jebus was supposed to have been conquered, but it hadn't fully been, so it's still in Canaanite hands. 
And here's the great irony. He says, I don't want to spend the night in a pagan town. I want to be with good Jews because they're moral. So then he goes to a Jewish town, and we know what happens there. And the great irony is not accidental. Well, first of all, he gets there, and you hear these horrors. It's like a horror movie. Do what you'd like. Only don't spend the night in the square. It's like, whoa, that's chilling. So it's not a one-off. We know this city is known for being dangerous. But then when these worthless men show up and start asking for him to come out, if you know your Bibles, if you're a Christian, you certainly know right away it sounds like Sodom, right? Same thing happens in Sodom in Genesis 19. In fact, Genesis 19.5, the wording is very similar. But the point of it is to show this. Israel has become Sodom. That's the point. The point is to tell you here at the end of the judge's story, the canonization of Israel is almost complete. That what happened in Sodom, which is a Canaanite town to the, to the Jews, is now happening to Jews in their own town. They've completely fallen. It's a far cry from where they started in chapter 1. Um, and it goes on, the worthless men come, they do what, they, what they're going to do. Um, interesting, when they call him out, you see how the women are treated? The old man, who is also a, journey, a journeyman, he says to the men, don't do this thing to the man, but you can do it to the women. It's interesting. Why? Why is it okay? And not just that, when they, even these worthless men, and there's no morality in them, but they, even they say, no, no, we want the guy. And they say, fine, no, no, you can't. And the man takes his concubine, his wife, his Isha, and sends her out and says, no, take her. So, it's, see, there's justice, but for whom? He needs justice. Don't do this to the man, but do it to the woman. Now, again, I'm not trying to be a modern feminist here, but you cannot ignore the problems here that we're seeing. Then, after this happens, she is literally raped to death. She dies with her hands on the threshold of the house. Ironically, the house she goes to after being abused, hoping to find help. And it's the very house she was put out of. So you're meant to feel the pathos, how pathetic a scene it is, how sad and miserable it is for her. And then when the man gets up in the morning, did you notice what it said? He gets up not to go look for her, but he was going home. So he walks, he wasn't even going to go look for her. He was going to go home and leave her wherever she was until he sees her. And then he grunts out two words in the Hebrew. In the English, it's a little longer, but the Hebrew literally just says, up, walk. That's all it says. So again, this, grunt, this gruff language, she is not a person. She's a thing in this story. And, I do, and then, of course, we know he then takes her home, puts her on the donkey, takes her home, cuts her up into 12, and sends the pieces to each of the tribes in Israel. Uh, presumably, Benjamin would have got one too, the very tribe that was responsible for this. Now, I am not, I, see, I say it over again, I don't like the way feminism has written its agenda of the modern age into the Bible. But I agree with one thing a rather liberal theologian has said, a woman named Phyllis Tribble, who I don't agree with anything else she has read, but it's my job as a guy, as a pastor and a scholar to read these. But she's right here. She says, of all the characters of scripture, she, the woman, is the least. Appearing at the beginning and close of a story that rapes her, she is alone in the world of men. She is property, object, tool, literary device. Without name, speech, power, she has no friends to aid her in, in life or mourn her in death. Captured, betrayed, raped, tortured, murdered, dismembered, scattered, this woman is the most sinned against. Next to Christ, I would agree with her. And this misery here, in fact, it's even worse. She mentioned something that I think is, you may not even notice in the, in the story. This woman never says a word. 
Never. Not a word comes from her mouth. And that's important. And this is why it's important. In fact, you know what this reminds me of? Um, we were talking about Northwinds. Indigenous women in Canada. Indigenous women in Canada are five times more likely to be murdered. Um, they're far more likely to, to be addicted to drugs, to go, their murders to be unsolved, to go unreported. And here's, I don't want to say the most tragic, because it's all tragic, but one of the most startling facts about how Indigenous women are treated in Canada is this. They are killed by strangers at a far higher rate than any person in the world. Now, this is why that's important. When we know, unfortunately, the miserable statistic that most women, when they're killed, are killed by a spouse or someone they know. Horrible. But when that happens, it's because there's a, a relationship. It is because that person, has, for whatever reason, there's some emotion there. But when you kill a stranger, you see, and they're both miserable. Please don't make me, I'm not saying they're better or worse. But when you kill a stranger, it's because that's not even a person to me. I'm just going to kill them. I'm just, I have something I want to do and I need someone to do it too. I'm just going to kill this person. And that's why when you hear that these women are murdered by strangers more often, it's because they have no value. And the language of the narrative, I don't always love, I'm hesitant to pick up on cultural language, but when they speak about these women being voiceless, there's a reason that we as biblical people, as Christians, should understand and then take it to a biblical direction rather than a cultural one. The distinction of the God of Israel is that he speaks. Every other God is dumb and mute. They cannot speak. They're made of wood. They're, they're figments of imaginations. They're delusional. It is the God of Israel alone that speaks. When Elijah calls down fire on, Mount, on the mountain, it is uh, Mount Carmel. It is, um, let's, let's do our thing and see which God answers. It's the God of Israel that speaks. Humanity alone of all creation has been given the ability to speak to God, to converse with God. Therefore, because we have the very abilities of God to speak, speaking is in of itself an aspect of our humanity. Thus, when we deny someone the ability to speak, we are denying them their humanity to an extent. And so when this woman has no voice, she speaks not at all in this passage, it is a tragic thing. She is dehumanized. She is a thing. But again, when you're in a world, in a world without God, there'll only be justice for some, not for all. So justice becomes exclusive. It becomes the very care of the people who hold the power. And again, I'm not calling on a cultural agenda. I'm not suggesting any of these woke things, none of that. Biblically speaking, it's very simple. No God, no justice. Simple. Okay? Second thing is relative. Justice becomes relative. Um, in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, if you've ever happened to be there, is this thing. It's a statue called Justice, Justitia in, in Latin. And it is done by a guy named oh, Walter Seymour Allward, I believe. Yeah, Walter Seymour Allward. I love this. Now, this statue is very similar. When you see Lady Justice in other cultures, she always looks very similar. But I'm going to explain what is going on in this statue to help you understand what justice ought to be compared to what it is. So, what Allward understands here is this. First, Lady Justice is always a lady because it's based on the Greek, god of, Greek goddess of Themis. Okay, famous, famous, who is a god of justice and law and order. So that's why she, it's usually a woman. She, often she has scales in her hand, right, sometimes, but almost always blindfolded. Here you don't. But what is going on in this statue? And we can show the next one. Yeah, it's closer. That's better, maybe, because you can see it up close. First, she's holding a sword. Why? Because a sword indicates that the justice system in Canada is given 
the authority to execute justice with a sword. It may execute justice, determine what is right and wrong. And it's always, always, always a double-edged sword on these statues because it divides truth from lie, innocence from guilt. So she's holding a sword because justice has that authority. Even to the point, in some, some situations, not so much here in Canada, but to the point of executing justice, to the point of death. Justice is supreme, and it has authority from the state to do this. Then, the double-edged sword we talked about. She's in a toga, because always in a toga, to represent the fact that ancients, from the ancient times, we have always understood that justice must be governed by reason and not emotion. Logic of the ancient philosophers. Law must be rational, not based on emotion. It's always justice, not vengeance, right? Not anger that dominates. Next, she is shrouded or blindfolded. In this case, she's shrouded. The, the shroud comes a bit overhead to hood her. And the reason is that she is not to be tempted away from, in, from justice by anything that is to distract her attention. Justice must be straight and focused on good and truth and justice. In fact, next to her is uh, 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 another statue that's called Truth, Veritas. And so she's always shrouded to, keep, to show that justice must be blind to, the, to anything distracting it. And lastly, the sword is shrouded. Sometimes it's in a sheath. Sometimes it's covered a bit by the toga. And the reason is to say that it is not used rashly. It is all, justice is an extension of rationality and to, to seek, seeking to give to the person what they deserve and no more. So it is used, but only used when required. It's not to be used rashly. Okay? Now, all of this brilliant. It's a great, great statue. But you see how wonderful the ideal is and how far we, we fall from it constantly. And when we look at this story and we see these bloody packages arrive, it's never, by the way, it's never been culturally okay to arrive a, get a package like that in the mail. So they would have been shocked, right? When that comes, you have to ask this question of the man. Who is he seeking justice for? Let me use an example. When I was a brand new Christian, um, uh, this is uh, me being honest here. Brand new Christian. Sarah and I went to marriage counseling, and we did it, and um, it was at, uh, for a while at Tyndale a Seminary. And I was a pretty new Christian. And I am in this, the lounge, the student lounge there, and I leave my jacket, and here's how old I am, had a Palm Pilot in it. Who remembers the Palm Pilot? Yeah, if you do, you're old. And uh, the Palm Pilot. So I had a Palm Pilot, which was a big deal. I leave it there, and Sarah even said, Hey, you, you may not want to leave it there. Don't spend the night in the square. You know? um, and I said, it's a seminary. And of course, it was stolen. Somebody took it. So the next, and every time I'd go to, to there with Sarah and I was there, I would see, and if I saw somebody holding one like mine, I remember, I literally, remember, please understand, I was a new Christian. I walked up to the one guy, I said, hey, can I see the back of that Palm Pilot? He said, why? I said, because if my initials are carved into it, I'm going to punch you right in the face. <laughs> so, this was not the way to solve problems. However, the reason I bring it up is, what was I looking for? If I didn't want justice, I wanted to satisfy my anger, the effrontery that they would dare to steal my things in the house of God. You know, it was not, There was no justice here. It was purely revenge. I just wanted to smack a guy for doing that because I spent 100 bucks, or I don't know what I spent on it. So... When that's the case, you look at this man. What is he seeking justice for? And you can see it, unfortunately, all too clear. Uh, but let's look at the story before we, we, as we walk through this. 
First, notice this. In chapter 20 and onwards, the first thing you realize, in fact, I think we put chapter 20, verse 1. Is it up there? Do I have chapter 20, verse 1 up there? How about the unity? I don't know if I did. I didn't? Oh, nuts. Okay, so that's okay. Here's what we do know. Israel, for the first time since chapter 3, is united. They had not gathered as a whole nation behind any of the judges for any of the causes or their own oppression. But at this point, on three or four different occasions in the very first verse of the chapter, you hear how they were all as one man, together, united, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south. So we have to ask that question. What is it about this? Why do they not get unified when God calls them to action, but they do when this scoundrel calls them to action? Okay, that's a question worth asking. Second, Israel then comes. The group of tribes come and say to the man, what happened? Tell us a story so we can know how to act. And his response is crafty, let's say. He gives truth, but not all the truth. First thing he says is, and the leaders of Gibeah rose against me. Did the leaders, does the text say the leaders rose against him? No, worthless fellows. But he says the leaders. Now, it could be said, we talked about this in our Tuesday morning study, it could be said that the leaders are implicated because they lead the city and they've allowed this to happen and they haven't done something about it. Irrelevant. Those men did it, not the leaders. You could accuse the police services of Niagara region for the crime happening in the city, but you can't sue the police when you get mugged because those men or the people who did it are responsible. So why does he say leaders? It's because he wants to implicate the city because he doesn't just want justice for his concubine. He wants death. I'm gonna, everybody should pay because they, how dare they do this to my property? Then he says these men meant to kill me. Did they? Or did they mean to rape him? Now I'm not suggesting there's better or worse, but he changes the language. He's trying to make it sound worse. I think we could argue rape is worse uh, than murder, but won't go into that now, but he changes it because he's trying to, again, increase the crime of the, le- the leaders to rile the nation against Benjamin. Then, they violated my concubine, and she is dead. See what he leaves out? That he took the concubine and sent her out and pushed her out to them. That part's left out. So when we speak about how justice becomes relative without God, this is what it means. Justice will always see that everything, everything must bend to me. Justice is not about getting justice for the world, it's for me. Because if he wanted justice, he would put himself under the sword, wouldn't he? Because he is partly to blame. But he doesn't want that. Because without God, justice is for the might. It's for the strong, for the ones who can do it. The truth is always sacrificed on the altar of self-interest. He wants justice for the mob, but not for himself. Because he always sees his sins as less terrible than the sins of others. Don't we do that? Don't we do that? I like it when, as a, as a pastor, sometimes people will come, and I'm not talking about any of you, um, but they'll come. I'm not. I'm really not. This is a different situation. But sometimes they'll come and say, Pastor, the church just isn't doing enough for evangelism. I say, great. What do you have in mind? Or what are you doing for evangelism? And they don't have anything. There's nothing. And I get it. And I get it. Because we are prone to seeing someone else's sin as far worse than our own. It's what we do. This is why we cannot divorce ourselves from God without relative justice coming. And so, hypocrisy will warp human justice when we're divorced from God. So that's the second thing. I have to move, even though it's a fascinating story. Last one. Justice gets abused. So, 
Here's, what the, here's how the story goes, and it's, it's a miserable story if you've read to the end of the book. Israel said, decides, this makes sense. Now we have to go and this, deal with Benjamin, who has allowed this to happen because the city of Gibeah is in Benjamin. So they raise an army. In fact, the biggest army the ju- judges has seen yet, again, for this. And they go to Benjamin and they say, just hand over the guilty parties and we'll, take care, we'll deal with it. Just hand over the guys who have done this and we can avert war. But the men of Benjamin, the leaders, say, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to give them up. Now, why? Why would these men not give up the guilty parties? And I know we read it and we can say, oh, more human sin. But remember how often it happens right now. When Russia did not want to hand over Edward Snowden to the United States, everybody was saying the only reason this is happening is because Putin doesn't get a chance to stick his thumb in the eye of America too often. So he's going to do it. He's going to hold him back. If you read in the ancient times, the Iliad, the Battle of Troy, when The war happens, as a pretext anyway, because Troy has stolen, the prince of Troy has stolen Helen. Remember the face that launched a thousand ships? She's stolen Helen from the Greeks, from Sparta. And when the Spartans come and say, just give us back Helen, what does the Trojans say, even though they're wrong? No. How dare you come into my country and demand something from me? See what's happening here? Nationalism trumps justice. Because justice is not the foundation. It's, in this case, we're seeing nationalism. And we see the massive abuse here. So the abuse of power, and let's look at what happens. First, it's interesting. They decide to go to war. When Israel fights Benjamin here, three battles happen. The first two don't go well for Israel, and they crush Benjamin in the last one. And with every single battle, they get more pious, more devoted to God. It's fascinating. They have, you haven't heard anything about God for a long time. But now, in the midst of an unsanctioned war against their own brothers, in fact, if you read it, you'll notice the narrator says, brothers, 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 to make, remind you that this is a civil war, not just some dis- detached war. It's a family problem. And the first time, they cry out to God and they ask, who should go first? They lose the battle, they go back to God, and then they do two things. They go and they ask him, who should, what should we do? Should we go back and fight a second time? But then they also weep before God. So now they've gone from inquiring to weeping and inquiring. And after that loot lost, the third time they go to God, and I have to read it because there's so many, they weep, they sit before the Lord, they fast, they offer burnt offerings, peace offerings, and inquire of God. So the most pious Israel's ever become now. They eventually go and they have this ingenious plan. They set up an ambush around the city and an army in front of it. When the Benjamites come out of the city to fight them in the morning, the Israelites retreat back to draw them away from the city. Then, while they're fighting, the ones who are in ambush sneak in behind, go in the city, burn it and destroy it, kill everybody, which they're not supposed to do. And then when the army that's fighting out in the field sees the smoke, they realize they've won, and then they've now got them surrounded. The Benjamites realize we're finished, we're in trouble, so they start to flee. 600 Benjamites survive out of about 26,000. Only 600, and it's immediate. As soon as they have defeated them, they realize, "Uh uh-oh, We shouldn't have done that. The moment they kill and destroy an entire tribe of Israel, they say, oh my goodness, bad decision. What do we do now? Because now we're missing a tribe, which we're not supposed to do. Now we have to go to God and figure how we're going to fix this. Um, When anger drives justice, this is what happens. When Jeremiah is trying to appeal for Israel before the Babylonian invasion in chapter 10 of Jeremiah, he says, 
Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Because he knows if justice is forsaken, anger devours. It's the only hope. And this is exactly what Israel's seen. What do you expect when you don't have any foundation for your justice? What do you expect? It'll always devour. Have you ever noticed our system? We cannot give someone rights without taking them from somebody else. I cannot give the LGBT community freedom and rights in this culture without silencing other people. See how we work? We as humans are incapable of lifting up one without putting down another. It's not because we need a better legal system and lawyers. We need transformation. This is the cry of the book of Judges, of all of Scripture, time and again. And here is even more proof. How does Israel decide to solve this problem? They say, okay, we can't let Israel not have 12 tribes because God will be very upset. So, there's 600 of them. We've got to give them wives. But now we're setting back in time. And before they went to battle, they all met and were now told that they, were, they made two oaths. They said, we have two oaths that we've made. The first one is, we'll never give our daughters to Benjamin because of what they've done. Never. The second one is, we're going to kill anyone who didn't join us in this war. So they say, okay, we can't give them men. It's only 600 fighting men. That's all that's left. They need wives, but we can't give them our wives. We can't give them foreign wives because that's not God's way. So we've got to find wives for them. So the first thing they decide is, well, is there anybody who didn't come to the war? And they find out that a place called Jabesh Gilead didn't come. So they say, great, let's go. They go and they kill everybody in the city and take the virgins. But they find it's only 400. So they give the 400 men to Benjamin and say, we still, we're 200 short. So they say, well, how are we going to fix this? So then they say, here's what we're going to do. Benjamin, you're 200 guys who are bachelors. Go to Shiloh because Shiloh has a festival. And when the young women come out to dance, abduct them. Steal the 200 women. And don't worry, if the men of the town of Shiloh come to get you, we'll intercede and say, hey, 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 look at the bright side. At least you didn't give your daughters so you're safe before God. They were stolen from you. Loophole. <laughs> like, you read it and you're like, what's happening in this world? And it's, I know it's ridiculous, but listen, we do the same thing, and I've said it before. I love these legal shows, like Suits. They're interesting. But those lawyers aren't good lawyers. They're just good at finding loopholes in the law to get their friends off of crimes. That's basically what the whole show is. They're trying to offset Harvey Specter's terrible, terrible ethics as a, as a lawyer. And this is what Israel has done. And then the book ends. It says, great, they've got 600 wives, and it ends. The book, the book ends. It ends there. But it ends, of course with these ominous words that we've heard many times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so, when self-interest is the best we can do as a people, when we divorce ourselves from God, this is the best you're going to get. Human answers to problems that just make a mess of everything. And so let me close here. The conclusion. This, these last words are not just an epitaph on, the, on, on a tombstone, but also a provocation. They tell us why the best has happened. There's no spiritual king, and they're just doing whatever they want. But it also points us to the future, to the answer. Because if there is going to be hope for Israel, all the book of Judges is very simple. In fact, Judges, all the history books, from Joshua through to Chronicles, tell you the same thing. If there's any hope for Israel and humanity, it cannot come from inside of humanity. It must come from outside them. The judges don't work. The kings come, and when the kings screw up, God sends prophets to help correct them. But when that falls apart too, they go into exile, and yet they're still looking for a human Messiah. 
We have to tell our brothers that their Messiah has come. So, but let me say this. Here's what it tells us. We need a hero, but we need one who will come without being called first because we're not calling for a hero. There's no, very few people other than the Christians in Canada are calling for God to fix the world. We're looking for better systems, better justice, a more woke culture, whatever it is, but we don't want God. So whoever this, this savior is gonna be, he's gotta come without being asked because humanity doesn't want him, okay? Second, he better do it all himself because we cannot help. In fact, when we tried to help this whole situation, we just put him on a cross and killed him. This is what Easter week is going to tell us. That as much as God came to the earth, he was able to turn our horrible, horrible sin into our salvation. No thanks to us, but only grace from him. So if he comes, he has to do it himself. Lastly, he's going to, or thirdly, he's going to conquer through weakness. The judges have shown us that God, to prepare us for a savior who will come who doesn't look like a savior. He's going to come and he won't be a sinner like the judges, but he will use his weakness and the weakness of the world to bring about salvation. Lastly, you'll have to purge hearts, not just society. Like I've said, we don't need better systems. Systemic racism is not the problem. Systemic sin in the heart is the problem. That's the issue. And we must be rigid about fighting that. Until we accept the Savior who came in on the donkey, we will continue to be the book of Judges time and again. And there is hope because what's the very next book? Remember the next book right after Judges? Ruth. And the very first words of Ruth in the days when the judges ruled, and it goes on. So here's what's incredible. Amidst all of this dumpster fire of a situation in Israel, God is doing something in this little family, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. So amidst all the chaos, God is preserving what is going to be the triumphal entry. He is saving the line and preserving the line and nurturing the line that Christ is going to come from. So all the while we are setting the world on fire, God is trying to save it. And that hope then leads us to where we are now. In the midst of our sin, God was at work, preparing the way for the king who would come. And until you accept the judge that came on Palm Sunday, you will be a judge. Stop trusting in yourself and human leaders to fix the world. Christ alone can fix us. Let's pray. Uh, you think, hey.